0: Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Superano. We're preparing for one of our favorite events of the year the Carolinas GCSA Conference and Trade Show in Myrtle Beach. And for this episode of Superintendent Radio Network, we're going to be talking with somebody who needs little introduction to the superintendents in the region, Dr. Bruce Martin of Clemson University. Dr. Martin recently announced that he's going to be retiring at the end of this academic year. So we decided it would be good to have Dr. Martin on to talk about some of the things he will be discussing with superintendents in Myrtle Beach. And we also thought it would be good to go back and Talk about some of the changes in turfgrass science and pathology that Dr. Martin has seen over the course of nearly a three-decade career at Clemson University. So we hope you enjoy this episode, and we also hope that you get a chance to spend some time with Dr. Martin, whether you're in Myrtle Beach or if you get a chance to maybe see him before he retires. Dr. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Before we talk about the show in Myrtle Beach— and some of the things going on in the industry this this year, let's get this out of the way, and you're retiring soon, say it's not oh. true.
1: oh, yeah, it's true, <laughs> yes, uh June of twenty eighteen, but I've gotta figure out my sick leave uh if i've gotten if I've got as much as I think I have, and maybe before that <laughs> so it's it's pending
0: well congratulations obviously you've had a a long and tremendous career and have helped hundreds of golf course superintendents in the carolinas and speaking of the carolinas we're getting ready for the carolinas gcsa conference and trade show what has that event meant to you over the years and what number will this be for you this year
1: well uh, i don't really know the total count i know since i first came to south carolina uh, would have been 1987. I've only missed one show, and I think uh, I think uh, I've taught or given some kind of presentation. Not all of them, except the one I missed. So they're pretty sick of me by now, it got to be. And uh, but it's changed a lot. Uh, just continual progress, really, over the years. So as you know now, it's it's one of the big shows uh maybe the biggest i don't know along the east East coast anyhow
0: so when you get asked to present at these events what goes through your head and how do you prepare a presentation to a a wide group of superintendents like you're going to in myrtle beach
1: well the main thing is know your audience and uh i guess fortunately for being around here in this region for all these years uh that's my audience you know i know them. uh we get folks coming over from Tennessee and Florida and Georgia and, the Carolin- you know, obviously North and South Carolina and, and a few from Virginia, but that's the region that I work in, so I'm pretty familiar with the problems that they have. And, I, you know, my seminars are all about practical stuff, disease and nematode control, uh, what's new on the uh, forefront of controls that are available, like new chemistry. Uh, how do we deploy that uh, chemistry or create a strategy, you know, for for managing whatever pest we're talking about? And, and all my stuff is pest
0: management. Speaking of that, what's new in the region this year and what are some uh, topics you're going to focus on it in Myrtle Beach?
1: Well, uh, one of the big things that's happened in the past couple of years has been uh, the introduction of Indemnify nematocide. Nematodes have always been top and center of the problems that we have in the southeast that we really didn't have good solutions for for many years. Uh, uh, our good nematicides dwindled over the years, and we were kind of left with not-so-great uh, not so, not so great, uh, options until Indemnify came along. And then also... Uh, Syngenta uh, went to the lab and improved the formulation of abamectin and, and registered divinem and that's helped also quite a bit, uh, particularly for root-knot nematode. So now we have some pretty good options for sting and root-knot nematode that we really didn't have. And uh, both labels are, are uh, nationwide labels, so any place that there's a problem with that, there's some tools to uh, to go to uh we also have some disease problems that have really perked up in the last several years on Bermuda grass, um uh, take all root rot has been a big deal around here and kind of continues to be um one of the things i think that's promoted that have been some of the tropical storms and hurricanes that have come through but that doesn't explain it all but uh so we've been working on that and uh, pithium root Rod and Bermuda grass. Most of the things that have happened have been uh, on ultra dwarf Bermuda grass.
0: Yeah, and a lot of golf courses in the region have converted from bent grass to ultra dwarf Bermuda grass greens. How much time do you spend studying those surfaces, and what have you learned about them the last few years?
1: Well, they're still—I mean, they're still a big success. Uh, you know, our options are limited. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, summers are hotter than they, they used to be. There's no doubt about that. We've, we've broken heat records in the Carolinas several times over the past decade. So that's a, you know, a record should be a rare event. Yet we break the records, you know, three or four times. I mean, that makes it difficult for bent, for bentgrass. So the bentgrass has shrunken, and what has taken the place largely has been ultradork permittagrass. There's a few courses that have gone to Diamond Zoysia, and that's been pretty successful from what I can tell. And then some with Seashore Past Palem where basically we have high salinity right along the coast in some locations, particularly around Charleston and the Sea Islands. So that's been a success also. Um, the Ultra Dwarfs, though, have been the big change over the past, oh, it's been 15 years now that this has been going on.
0: What is it like studying four different varieties of grasses for greens? How do you budget your time, and how do you know where to put your uh, resources? Well,
1: uh, mostly it's been where the problems have shown up. We, we have, actually I've seen more minor problems with Zorvia than, than anything. Uh, Past Palum has its issues with diseases but less of a problem with nematodes. Uh, I think we've got pretty good solutions for the disease problems. Um, most of the problems where we've had more trouble has been with bermudagrass, and I think that kind of comes down to its lack of shade tolerance. Uh, we're growing these grasses in places where the trees have grown for many years. And a lot of these trees on golf courses don't belong to the golf course. So that's a big issue, I think, that weakens the grass and makes it more, uh, not necessarily more susceptible, but more uh, weak in in its recovery from diseases. Um, We've had diseases like spring dead spot where we lost rubigan, and and it took a a year or two when we got lucky and new chemistry came along that really controlled spring dead spot. so we've you know we work through that and have good solutions for spring dead spot and then take all root rot comes along and uh you know we have to it's back to square one what works what doesn't work in our area and most mostly that disease has been more chronic in florida and the gulf coastal states not a big deal for us up until Recently, so you know, we have to we have to do our regional uh, trials and research to see what really works for us. And I think we're getting there. We we're homing in on when to apply and what to apply and and uh, how to manage fertility and things like that. Um, one other disease I, I should probably mention is mini ring disease. Um, Rhizoctonia is the causal agent, and I have a graduate student myself and burt mccarty and jim kearns all are on his committee jim at nc state and uh i think he's made a bit of a breakthrough with some fertility uh recommendations that that are really going to help with mini rings so, so that's good to see here towards the end of my career getting some answers on that disease uh, that one's been troublesome
0: you've been at clemson close to 30 years what were some diseases and issues you heard about in the 1980s that you rarely hear about now?
1: Oh, back then, uh, you know, everything was Tiff Dwarf or, or 328, and uh, it was cut high because you had to. It was, uh, <laughs> you know, we, it had better root system, I think, than the current varieties, the current Ultra Dwarfs, and we just honestly didn't have as big a problem with Bermuda, but we had a lot more bentgrass in the state, and we had plenty of problems on bent. And so there's been a lot of work done on bentgrass in the south uh, back then and all the way still continuing, of course. And uh, I think the big, the big breakthrough on bent was the recognition of Pythium root rot and how, uh, how important that component of the disease spectrum is survival of bent in the summer. That, that and the, the advent of big fans was the, um, was the real thing that made a difference in managing bent. So there's, you know, there's still uh, some high-end golf courses that have bent grass, and, and they do quite well managing it. And uh, mm-hmm. they've got good tools. They know what they're doing. Uh, they have good plans on their fungicides. I haven't seen anybody lose a bentgrass green in years, <laughs> so uh, that's that's kind of the trend that I've seen with bent. With, back in the '80s, we lost greens con- uh, routinely in the summertime. I mean, losing from the standpoint of having to shut down and play on temporaries.
0: How have expectations changed? You get to see it, you know, in your role as a turf grass pathologist. How? Low, have mowing heights gone? How frequent has rolling become? And from your perspective, how, what is it like seeing those changes in, in golfer expectations?
1: Oh, it's kept me in business. <laughs> those low low cutting heights, the lower you go in general, the more susceptible to diseases. Even the, for us, a routine disease like dollar spot can become chronic and more difficult to manage. Certainly up north, we're... Dollar spot is without a doubt, number one, first and foremost. Low low cutting heights and low fertility are the things that really drive the epidemics. And, uh, you know, uh, we manage that. Golfer expectations, as you know, have not backed off any. <laughs> Maybe they've even gotten more demanding. They probably have. Uh, and superintendents have met that challenge uh, both with bent and Poa and Ultra Dorse. Uh, that's the reason we have Ultra dwarfs is to meet that challenge. And uh, and they have. They met it. Cost has been higher, uh, a riskier system, I think. And in, uh, in all of those grasses, so we have. You know, we have big disease problems in all of those those grasses. On Poa annua, it's, it's anthracnose probably by and large. And Rutgers has really re- led the way in research to help manage. And thrachnose, and a lot of that is cultural practices. Alternating mowing or double cutting at a little higher height of cut and rolling and getting, picking the fertility up where you can still have good green speed but relieving the plant of some stress. Those those types of things help with all grasses. But what it, what it also has done is it's caused us to rely on chemistry a lot, good fungicides, and uh, that's a That should concern everybody because new fungicides are not coming along every day. And the cost of registering new chemistry, even if we get it, is astronomical. We've got a lot of susceptibility and risk, I think, in that aspect of the industry that people should be paying attention to. Uh, And what I'm talking about is resistance or enhanced biodegradation things that are going to impact the ability of those fungicides to work uh, the way they do now.
0: Over the years, you probably got a lot of phone calls from superintendents that were in tight spots and were probably in panic mode. How do you handle those, and how fulfilling was it to work with a superintendent through the problem?
1: Uh, That's my favorite thing, not that somebody gets into trouble, but that we come to a solution. (laughs) If we can do that and then they our helped uh, out of the, the bind, whatever it is, that gives me more satisfaction than anything. It's happened a lot over the years. Some some of the time it's just questions on, uh, you know, helping someone with a diagnosis. We get the right diagnosis and we can give the right recommendations. That's routine. Everybody does that. Uh, but it does, I think, Provide kind of a, a base of service <laughs> that we do as, as extension people. Uh, the emergencies, though, uh, number one thing is I try not to panic. <laughs> if they're panicking, it doesn't help if I panic. Uh, you know, we just treat it like anything else. We we try to diagnose it correctly, whatever it is, and and then look at the big picture. Uh, you know, look at their greens construction, their drainage, their exposure, all those things that may be making whatever the problem is worse so that we don't just slap a Band-Aid on it, you know. We may need a Band-Aid, but they need to address why did this thing occurred. Uh, some of that—it's just kind of missing the boat. Uh, many times I've diagnosed big nematode problems on on greens where they they didn't have a clue that they had nematodes, and you know those are kind of easy for me because I I'm tuned in to looking for them. But for the end user, it's it's not easy because it's not obvious. <laughs> you know they're not they're not tuned in. They're not looking. They're looking at other other issues or secondary issues that are indications. So those those kind of things. There've been some some diseases when the Rapid blight uh, epidemics hit. That's back when everybody's still overseated with Poetrivialis. We didn't know what it was. Uh, all over the nation, this thing was happening in California a lot, in Arizona, and and then over here. And uh, a team of people. I was part of that team from the West Coast and the East Coast. Uh, kind of worked together to figure that out. And it took a couple of years, but fortunately. Uh, one thing I was kind of proud of is we we came up with the chemistry that worked on it, and it gave us the Band-Aid <laughs> while we worked through the biology of the problem and figured out what was really going on. That, that was really kind of cool. And uh, fortunately, we figured out what to do about it before we really understood why and what was the causal agent, why it was occurring.
0: How do you tactfully... Tell a superintendent who never imagined having a nematode problem on a green, on his or her course. How do you tactfully handle that that situation?
1: Well, I just say, yeah, I found nematodes. Here they are. You know, I mean, there's that's just the facts. You don't you don't try to gloss it over. You just say, here they are. They're here. There's no doubt about it. These are the counts. Uh, and then the tact part comes into um, they may say, well, we fumigated those greens two years ago. They're brand new. They can't be. And I say, well, yeah, it is, and here's why. <laughs> and so you just explain how this can happen, and it's it's not their fault. Uh, it could be that nematodes came in from the surrounds due to storms, moving them into the greens, things that, you know, we're, we know and we're co- sort of tuned in, or they came in on the plant material, Uh and the superintendent is not, uh, you know, they have everything, you know, that they're, they're concerned with, and we home in on the specific problems. So you just, you just talk it through. It's not that they did anything wrong. It's really a success that they reached out for help, and we were able to help them. <laughs> that's, the way you, that's the way you look at it. Um, the guys that don't ask the questions are the ones that are going to get hurt the worst. <laughs>
0: What type of relationships do you develop with your colleagues and the end users you work with when you've been in the business as long as you have, and how important is collaboration to the success of what you do?
1: Well, it's it's critical. I, I collaborate with my colleagues, uh, plant pathologists. Uh, the rapid blight was a good example of that. The guy who really uh, ramrodded the effort was Dr. Larry Stowell out in Southern California with Pace. Um, and I've known Larry for forever, you know, so, and I've, I've collaborated with, uh, um, pathologists all around the country, really. And, uh, uh, and then I've collaborated with all the industry folks with the major chemical producers, BASF, Bayer, Syngenta, et cetera, um, uh, and have good relationships, I think, with all of them, um. It's the same deal. You just you you tell the truth <laughs> when you, when you find something out and uh, and you just communicate and uh, it, everybody wins. I think uh, so. It, it's critical. And my colleagues at Clemson, we we collaborate. We collaborate with students, with grad students. I mean, it's it's all about collaboration. One one person can't do everything. You need you need help from everybody. Some of the regional uh, uh, vendors, you know, like Harolds or Vereen's, uh, you know, they are kind of my eyes and ears out there. Uh, they they sometimes bring samples or they, they text me all the time with photos. So-and-so's having this. What do you think? Uh, and that's great because I can't get around to all these places. You know, it would just eat up my time and it allows me to, better budget my time, stay in the lab when I need to, and, and things like that. So, yeah, that's been a lot of fun, really. Made, made a lot of friends, um, watched students, you know, graduate and become excellent superintendents. Some of them you wouldn't have predicted it before. <laughs> they turn out to be really hot dogs out there.
0: So that's fun. What's the variety of your job like? You get to teach a bit, you get to work with students, you get to do research, you get to go to field days, you get to go to conferences and seminars. I would take it that you really have enjoyed the variety that your job has provided over the years. Well, yeah, that's
1: that's one of the advantages, I guess, of working uh, for the university uh, in the university of the land grant system. I mean, I. I'm a believer, and the land grant system is one of the greatest inventions <laughs> that the U.S. ever, ever had. I mean, it, it's up there with invention of the light bulb or whatever. So I'm not kidding with that. Um, it's it's huge And in agriculture. Turf has benefited from that, and uh, that you know that research extension teaching uh, mission is something that really doesn't exist uh, around the world, and it's just, it's just here. So that, that model, I think, has allowed us to, to do what we do and help all aspects of agriculture where we can, where there's money, where there's problems, uh, et cetera. And, and so that's how a lot of this has just developed, I think, is out of that model. And uh, GCSAA, the Carolinas, other you know farm bureau you just go down the line uh usda all of those all of those things kind of
0: tie in to that how worried are you about the future of turfgrass research what concerns do you have and what reasons uh for optimism are there out there too
1: well i i do see the turf the commercial turf the golf market coming back although it's slow It, it it should be slow when you think about the what happened you know a few a few years ago and and why it happened uh the fact that it is building back to me is a sign of health and and it's building back slowly but surely is a sign of health it's nothing no flash in the pan kind of thing uh there's challenges because the big challenge i mean it's all about time you know people's time and having disposable income to to play golf uh I think golf has a great story to tell that way and so I, I'm not too worried about that aspect and, and South Carolina is going to be fine tourism is still front and center uh, of the of the industries here and golf is a big part of that um, from the college and land-grant uh, there's challenges there for sure because enrollment in turf programs I think around the country has, has gone down and admit and that that's a consequence of, of the downturn. Administrators at, at universities look at enrollment of whether or not they refill positions. I'm sure this is part of the debate about my position at Clemson, but it would be any position. wouldn't happen to be necessarily turf. They're going to go back and look, okay, it's a bit of an opportunity to change if they need to change. and. What the turf industry has to do is stay engaged with, uh, with communication with the administration of universities and work with them to so that the university is aware of the turf industry and the impact that they have and, and also how the turf industry can help the university because the universities are under constant uh, budget constraints. You know, they can only do so much and the overhead is very high <laughs> to operate a facility and uh you know they have to get funds to help them do it they they don't come from the state believe it or not other than maybe some office space and salary and uh, which is huge if you add it up <laughs> it's a big it's a big part i kind of my feeling is is most of the golf Industry, the, the superintendents out there are not aware of that. They're they're sort of vaguely aware of it, and they need to be more aware of it because if they're not engaged, um, it, it'll go somewhere else. The the dollars, the FTEs, and they'll be they'll be left with uh, folks that aren't as independent <laughs> as the university people can be. I'm not saying they. they're they're not good or anything like that they're just uh they're going to have something to sell and so uh, i think there's a real real value to having independent um research
0: what would you tell a young person who's considering entering the the golf industry
1: what would i tell them i'm going to assume that they like to be outdoors (laughs) and they like to work with a biological system if they really got that passion the rest of it I think will come along. Uh, I would tell them to have a good business sense. They need to understand the business of golf, uh, and that would include formal training in business. Uh, they got to have good, solid agronomic background, uh, understand that they're dealing with nature. And they have to be good communicators to their own staff and to the, the folks that are uh, paying their salaries so that they can they can communicate effectively, and uh, and I think they have to be a little bit humble and understand that everybody gets their clock cleaned <laughs> sooner or later and uh, and reach out for help when they need it.
0: If you, if you think about the last 30 years, a lot of the great golf courses in South Carolina have been built. The state has hosted major championships. It's hosted the Ryder Cup. What are some of the events that that you've been to, or some of the things you've worked on, that are going to really stick out in your mind.
1: I work kind of behind the scenes. I actually rarely go to those
0: tournaments. <laughs> so you've you've kind of had a, a, a like a, a hidden seat to South Carolina's golf rise.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I have, and uh, that's fun. I mean, I've, every now and then there's something big coming along, and, and a problem occurs uh, beforehand, and and we we may need to intercede and help. And, and that's usually not ever talked about too much. We just do what we do. It's the same as anything. And the hope that it's in time to so that they can, they can have a successful tournament. Um, but it is fun to see that, you know, we're definitely on the map. I mean, we've always been on the map. You've, we're right in the middle. Pinehurst is right just north of us. Myrtle Beach is what it is. I mean, it's legendary, iconic. Um, Augusta National right over the border so I've had a good relationship with all of those folks and so I've seen that real high end uh, golf forever and uh, and I've learned a lot by observing those guys and being in communication with them and, uh, um, but then we also have our mom and pop golf courses all around the state too that, that are important so it's been fun to work in that diversity i guess
0: so so, so what's next f- for you Are you going to pack up go to the coast and play a lot of golf or what's what's next for dr <laughs> bruce martin uh
1: well it, i'm going to kind of still be involved but again probably behind the scenes i'll probably work and do some contract research with with some folks on projects that i'm interested in but uh my main Goal is that I have more of my time under my control. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't retire. And uh, and I, I like to hunt and fish. I'm, I'm a really crappy golfer. Ask anybody who's ever seen me play. They'll say, "Hey, stick to the lab, you know, or, or go fishing. You know, just it's too ugly. I lose respect when I get out on the golf course." So.
0: <laughs> This was wonderful. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us on the podcast. And more importantly, thank you for everything you've done for golf course superintendents in the Carolinas and golf course superintendents all over the country. I know everybody in the business really appreciates it. And good luck in retirement. And hopefully we bump into you at events in the future still.
1: Yeah, I hope so. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it.